You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 6 today. You can follow along with me as the scripture is read. We'll be reading chapter 6 starting in verse 30 through 32. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. This is God's word. Well, good morning, Holy Cross. Uh, It is good to be here with you this morning. Uh, If you're new or visiting for the first time, dropping in on the service, my name is Peter Zimmer. I'm the director of family and community and one of the elders here at Holy Cross. Uh, Stepping in to preach this morning, grateful for the opportunity, humbled by it, um, to give our lead pastor, Pete, a break, who read our scripture for us this morning. As you can tell, we are continuing in our service or our uh, series through the Gospel of Mark. And so he read that passage for us this morning, Mark 6, uh, verses 30 through 32, and that's what we'll be preaching from this morning. This meets us at a very heavy, busy, full time with tons going on in our culture, tons of headlines and heavy things. George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, racism, riots, police brutality, policy, uh, COVID-19, remember that? Resurgence in Arizona, uh, Candace Owens, so many different voices, the Bighorn Fire, evacuations in Tucson. There is just so much going on, social media. And then being a a, a parent, potentially uh, pregnant, struggling with pregnancy, struggling with singleness, being a spouse, there are so many things going on in our lives right now. Um, And I think that this just meets us. Oh, and and not to mention uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are hitting the campaign trail. So that's coming in the next few months. What do you feel as I list off those things? As I share these things, as as I list them off, are you gripping your chair? Are you breathing heavy? Do you feel tension building? Do you feel uncomfortable? Do you feel tired? I know I do. And I, I'm not even a minority. I'm not even uh, affected personally uh, by so much of what's, what's going on. And I just feel worn out and exhausted. And I know for many that might be easy for me to say, and that's absolutely right. But these things are difficult and consuming, and so much is going on because they're, they're heavy, they're weighty, they're, they matter. And they're personal to so many of us. And they're big, comprehensive issues and things going on in our world that matter a ton. And they're important. They're emotional. And then on top of that, if we're Christians, if you call yourself a Christian and you're involved in this, then there's the uh, weight and discernment and consideration of, of what it looks like to enter into those things with that knowledge and posture and, and position. And it weighs on us. And I feel that. And I get the feeling that a lot of you out there, too, do do as well in this time. And so God's word to us this morning, I think, comes at a really good, loving time. His word to us is, come. 
come. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Do you feel the compassion of your Lord in this moment as you hear that? I want to read it again and pause for a second and let you take it in. Jesus says to his disciples, and therefore this morning through his word to you, church, come, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Take that in. I think it's God's kindness to us and love for us, knowing our frame and what we need as people in this time, as a gospel-shaped, informed, and sent people to hear this word of rest from him to us. This passage this morning is about finding deep, profound, life-changing, soul-satisfying rest from a relationship with Jesus. So in these two short verses, a very small little comment made in a narrative of a lot going on in the life of Jesus and the disciples, there's three things that we can pull out and see this morning, okay? The condition for receiving this rest with Jesus, the context for experiencing this rest, and then the crux of this rest. What is the crux of this rest? So the condition, the context, and the crux. So here's the condition for receiving this rest that Jesus has to offer us. Come weary and empty-handed. Come weary and empty-handed. First, weary. Verse 30 uh, says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So if you remember last week, Pete taught on a passage, just a a few passages in the same chapter uh, before where we are today, where Jesus had sent them out to uh, their missionary journey. He sent them out two by two um, and gave them instructions for that to go out and to preach and to repent, to preach the gospel of repentance to people and to do healing. And, um, and, And this is what the context for what they're returning from. So when it says they returned and told him all that they had done and taught, they were giving the response of what they'd done Uh, to Jesus after coming back from that travel. And we don't know exactly how long that was, but it was what they had been doing. Um, Now, I want to go back a little bit into the context for you to grasp and and remember why they would be feeling weary at this point. Now, for sure, it it was likely a mix of weariness and exhaustion, running on fumes, um, but also probably some excitement over the testimony that they'd seen of God's work through them. Um, I'm sure that there was excitement in this, but overall, it was, I'm sure, a heavy time, a time of a lot of um, emotional and spiritual and physical exhaustion. So they had been first rejected at Nazareth. They'd been with Jesus. He'd been denied by his family and and basically kind of mocked. And they saw a discouraging lack of faith there, right? And then Jesus sends them out. And he sends them out uh, purposefully with very little. Remember Pete's sermon last week that they were instructed to have, uh, to, to not provide for their own security, but to rely on Jesus. And they were given the message of preaching repentance, a controversial, uh, divisive message in the lives of people, okay? Because it's asking for people to change their lives. That's controversial. Jesus uh, anticipates their rejection because he says, when people reject you, do this. Remember, Pete quoted Taylor Swift, shake it off. Shake it off, and he told us why in, through rest in Christ we can do that. But nevertheless, 
that's an exhausting thing. And then we hear this story. Uh, Mark takes a break, and he tells us the story of the death of John the Baptist by being beheaded for the same thing. He had been preaching a message of repentance to Herod for his sins, and, and that landed him death by being beheaded. And so this news, we don't know exactly when this happened, but it hits the disciples. And so this is the context for them coming to Jesus, one of their teammates, a leader in uh, the ministry, John the Baptist, someone they were close to. Jesus' cousin had been beheaded. They had been traveling. Who doesn't come home from traveling being totally exhausted? They had been preaching and teaching, exerting themselves, experiencing rejection, and yes, experiencing some wins and some great testimonies, for sure. But I think as I uh, say these things, you can resonate with that. You, you know what it's like to experience rejection. You know what it's like to carry a controversial message and the weight of a hard conversation with people. You know the weight of traveling. You know the weight of walking, of speaking, of talking. It's exhausting, right? It's exhausting. Um, they come weary. They come weary and exhausting. <clears throat> And uh, But what we see here is not that their weariness and our weariness in coming to Jesus is a hindrance to relationship with Jesus. It's actually a prerequisite for it. It's a condition for it. It's actually in their weariness and the weariness that we can understand that they're feeling and that we know that we're feeling, that is the context or the, the condition for Jesus inviting us into relationship with him to find rest. For those who are tired, weary, exhausted, burdened, come to me and rest. And by this invitation, he's reminding us that our weariness and our exhaustion, our tiredness isn't futile. It's not, we're not hopeless in it. But actually, by this invitation to come and rest a while, it's like a promise from him that gives them hope that their rest and their weariness, or their, their weariness by his rest will be satisfied. The second thing that we need to see is to come empty-handed. And this one's a little bit more subtle here in our text, but we need to come empty-handed. So I think we need to uh, pay attention to what the disciples did when they came back. So Mark structured it. To, he's teaching us by, by showing us what the disciples, what their priority was in coming and returning to relationship and proximity with Jesus. They come back and they say they shared with him in verse, um, or yeah, in verse 31, they shared with him all that they did and taught. Now, we have no idea what their motives were in that. You know, if that was um, trusting in their own power, if they were prideful about it, or if they were just amazed by it and humbled by it. We don't know their motives, but we know that that's what they did. And we know what Jesus did in response to them coming with that message. So what Jesus does is he immediately diverts his attention from their ministry activity to relationship with him. So he's not affirming their identity and what they did. I'm sure that he was grateful for and, and to an extent proud of and happy with and satisfied by their obedience and what they had 
experienced and learned and seen as a testimony of his power. I'm sure he was very grateful for that. But this is a teachable moment for him in his relationship with them, calling them to follow him. He's not affirming their identity and what they did in their activity, but drawing them into relationship with him. It's helpful in these times to remember, to pay attention to what he did not say, right? So he didn't say, now that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, healing. You did it. See what you can do if you just believe in yourselves? See, trust me, you got this one. You, you, you can heal people. You heal the blind? Look what's in you. Look at what you can do. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't meet their discouragement with, well, forget all the people who discouraged you. Look at all the people that followed you. Any batter would love a 500 batting average, right? So he, he does not let their work and accomplishment be their rest, right? He doesn't play that game. Instead, he says, he leaves that, and he says, come away and rest. It's like he's saying, leave that in its proper place. I care about you. I care about you. I care about your personhood, not what you can do for me. And it's interesting, again, where this falls in, in what's going on. Remember, the, the last passage that we talked about was when they were sent out on their, on their journey. Jesus had um, instructed them to only take one tunic and to, and to basically depend on his provision for them so that he could teach them of their need and dependence on him, right? And then this happens, and next week, Pete will be preaching on the feeding of the 5,000. So just from here, they go to the other side, and many of you are familiar with the story of the feeding of the 5,000, where they have nothing to offer in and of their own strength, and Jesus provides. And so I think this moment to rest is really instructive to us in this narrative of teaching his disciples that they have nothing to offer in their own strength. They are empty-handed. And he says, in that, he says, he's teaching us, I don't care about what you do in your ministry activity. I care about you, your personhood. Isn't that refreshing? Are you refreshed by that right now? I hope, I hope that you are. This is very different than what we tell ourselves, the narrative going on in our head all the time, and, and what the world tells us, Right? This narrative that we're telling ourselves and is per perpetuated and propagated on us by all the information around us is that you are the sum of what you do. You make a name for yourself, right? You get hired because of your resume. You win games because of your performance. And oftentimes, unfortunately, in many of our families of origin or just relationships that we've had, we have come away with these ideas that we need to earn our value through what we do. This message is saturated in our world, all around us, through all forms. And, it's, and it exists because that's, in our sin, what we truly believe about ourselves. It's the way the world works. Contracts and ladders and ascending the ladder, the hierarchy. But here's the problem with this dynamic that exists in our world and in our hearts of thinking that what we do... To, um, accomplishes our value is that it conditions us to think or it's maybe it's a result of us actually thinking this either way it shows us that that we think we are far more capable and far more in control of our lives than we really are 
So we have this idea in this complex that we are in charge, we are in control, and we can affect so much more of our life and our destiny and the state of the world than we really can. And what? And, and, and then here's the thing. If you, if you are, don't feel like you're in control, if you don't feel like you have um, your, your, your act together, the world doesn't have compassion on that. People don't have compassion. The, the message is try harder. Get yourself together. Get your life in order. And then you'll experience peace and rest. What's the result of that? I mean, we all know. We all experience this. It's anxiety, angst, anxiousness. And I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm talking about the anxious temperament of our age and our pace of life. It's restlessness, exhaustion, fatigue, depression. So then if this is the narrative going on in our life, the input and the output and everything that we're dwelling in, how does this shape and inform our view of God and our perceive our perception or our perceiving of our relationship with Him. Well, we do what's natural, what's default for us. We we instead of coming to God with empty hands and a heart and a posture of need, we come with our resume in our hands. We come, look at what I've done, look at what I've accomplished. Here's why and how I'm a good person or a valuable person. Or we completely resist him. We become willfully apathetic about him and what he thinks and who he is. You know, maybe we'll like think in our minds, yes, we do agree a God exists, but I don't even have the thought or energy to entertain him as a person that matters. I'm so much more concerned about what I think about myself and what others think about me. So, so we resist him either feeling shame, feeling ashamed of ourselves or shame of our inability or pride for the resume we've built. So either we have a bad resume and we're ashamed of it, and that keeps us from communion with Jesus and a, a relationship, desire to have a relationship with God, or we, um, we take a lot of pride in our resume, and we think we live in this illusion that we don't need God. Either way, either side of that, the result of that is the opposite of intimacy with God. Instead of being drawn near to him, instead of understanding that Jesus' command to us is come, we go. We separate. It's the opposite of intimacy with God. And that, Jesus knowing this, is what he invites us into this morning and what he invites his disciples into. Maybe we're weary right now because we're bearing a burden inside be it subconsciously, we're bearing a burden that we were never meant to bear. Should we bear one another's burdens? Absolutely. Should we, in a sense, be a burdened people by the affairs of the world and by the pain and lament of our neighbor? Should we lament evil and difficulty and sin and death? Wholehearted, absolutely, yes. But do we have to bear the burden of engaging it perfectly, of the perfect response, or the pressure of thinking that it all depends on us and how we handle it? Do we have to bear the burden of a a complete paralysis and fear of failure or a pride in thinking that we are so much more capable than we are, a lack of humility? 
No, that is not the burden that we're meant to bear. I read something recently by an author I've really come to like named Paul Miller. Um, He wrote a book on prayer called A Praying Life, and I've been reading that. I actually started reading it again with some friends right after I finished it the first time because I I feel like I really need it. So I recommend that to you. Um, Here's what he says. Anxiety wants to be God but lacks God's wisdom, power, or knowledge. And again, because I know that this can be a a sensitive issue, he is not belittling or downplaying the real uh, difficulty of clinical anxiety, but again, talking about the anxious temperament of our age and often our hearts. And sure, it does get down to even the heart of, of clinical anxiety as well and what's involved with that. He's not trivializing it, though. Let me start over. Anxiety wants to be God, but lacks God's wisdom, power, or knowledge. A godlike stance without godlike character and ability is pure tension. Because anxiety is self on its own, it tries to get control. It is unable to relax in the face of chaos. Once a problem is solved, the next in line steps up. The new one looms so large, we forget the last deliverance. Oddly enough, it took God to show us how not to be godlike, end quote. Jesus, totally God, totally man, the perfect man because he was in perfect relationship with God because of his divine nature, said to us, come away and rest. He invites us into it. He models it for us. He lives it out himself in relationship with his father. He says, shed the burden. He is God. He knows the power that God has, and he he withdraws to connect with the power that is in God. And he's inviting them. He's like, stop pretending. Stop thinking that you're God, that you're living with this delusion, and come with me to this perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus, fully divine, came as a man to lead us away from our sinful, deluded desire to act like God. And so, once we come to Jesus listening with empty-handed weariness, what is the method that he prescribes? So he gets practical here. This is a very practical command. He says, come, get away, and rest a while. What is his... um, method for getting us to rest. So that's the next point. Here's the context for experiencing the rest. Get away. Get away to a desolate place, he says. This is straightforward. Separate. But it's hard. We know it's hard. Or else we'd be doing it, and we'd be in a better place. So let me read another list for you, okay? Now that we just got done talking about anxiety, let me... um, Make you anxious again. Uh, There are 293 billion emails exchanged per day. That's an estimate in 2019. I might have counted a little off, but 500 million tweets per day. So that's 6,000 per second. There's 95 million photos and videos shared to Instagram per day. On Facebook, users generate 4 million likes every minute. So that's all social media. 
Here's another one. We are estimated to make 35,000 decisions in a single day. Obviously, this isn't all just like cognitive, like what to eat, but moment by moment, we're making decisions constantly. We're inundated with noise, with constant demands and information. Oh, I don't have my phone with me, but on our phones, we have a dictionary, a thesaurus, a world map, a Encyclopedia Britannica multi-volume set, um, directions, a Bible, um, the complete works of as many scholars as we want access to, and in every language. So we, we, we carry that with us at all times. We are inundated with information and noise and so much going on that puts demands on us, increases our decisions, depletes us mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. We're distracted. No one needs to be convinced of that. We're distracted. Have you ever, something I hear often um, in my marriage, and I'm sure many of you can relate to and have heard yourself, is it's like you're here, but you're not here. Our minds are running. Things are going on. Things are pulling at us, right? And when, our cult, when there's so much turmoil and unrest in our culture, that only adds to it. So, like we talked about, being distracted and overstimulated as we are, it leads us to restlessness, stress, tension, inability to know and hear our hearts and our motives. We, we actually disconnect from what's going on in our heads and our hearts and our minds, our spirits. And of course, if this is what's going on and this is our baseline, then, then we don't have a chance. We, we're completely unable to connect in a meaningful, transformative way with God. We can't connect meaningfully with God with all that noise, distraction, and stress. I mean, is it, is it possible? Does it feel possible to... to um, have our hearts and minds open for the transformation that he offers and that he promises when, when we're that cluttered? Is that possible? I don't know. I don't think that it is. And here's what makes it especially difficult. It's not just the volume of what's, at, what's happening and pulling at us. It is that all of that going on is perpetuating and reinforcing the narrative that we just talked about in the last point. This idea, this narrative going on in our minds that um, is completely the opposite of what God and the gospel offers to us. It's this, you are what you do. You can't disengage because it depends on you to figure it out, to make your way forward, to be valuable in this. Do you feel that? Do you feel the burden of that? Do you feel exhausted by that? Is this touching a, a string or a chord with you? Do you feel like we're living in a world of distraction and unrest? If you don't feel that, I, I have no idea how to, um, how to relate to you. Um, and here's the, the answer. The world does give us an answer. There's a lot of information and messaging out there through all these channels on how to handle this and what to do. And the answer is, unplug, so it's either stated overtly to us or it's just the patterns that we fall into. But it's a, unplug, shut down, disengage, and disconnect. So it, 
it might say the same, same thing as what Jesus is saying here, is, is get away, go to the woods for a little bit, or just zone out for a little bit, just rest, clear your head, clear your mind, um, just take a break. And so in other words, um, I think w- what we're prone to do is to find a way that we numb or mask the pain or the difficulty of what's going on. And we do this in, in a lot of ways. Um, we do this through laziness, through pursuit of pleasure, through um, kind of like, like a party environment. Like, let's just keep it superficial and have fun and laugh and share memes. And I mean, to be lighthearted, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying that there's these different strategies that we use to mask and to cover, right? Looking to silver linings, the power of positive thinking, mental toughness. Ignoring difficult things, avoidance, substance abuse, drinking, drugs, alcohol, pornography. Something to gratify us and numb or ease our pain. To, to, to give us this idea that we're resting and being um, filled and replenished by pleasure and what we want. But Jesus shows us a different way. He says, step away, come away to a desolate place and rest a while. So he says, step away. He says, remove distractions, get quiet, and be with me. So his invitation to come is to be with him. His message is not only unplug. That's sure a part of it, but it doesn't stop there. It's free yourself from all the distractions and all the things so that you can entirely plug into me. It's not an emptying, it's a switch, right? It's not a break from the narrative, like, okay, I just got to pause the running narrative of everything I have to think about and everything the world is telling me about myself. It stops the narrative, and it says, you need a new narrative, and, and I have it, and I can tell you how to find it. It's his narrative. His narrative, the gospel narrative of of value and connection with the Father. So solitude, nature, um, being in a desolate place in the wilderness, going to our desert, going to the cabin in the woods, early morning time. These are not the end in and of themselves. They They are just a bomb if they're left at that, a temporary bomb. They are a means to the end. And the end is peace and intimacy with God through Jesus. It's relationship. It's restored, transformative, life-giving, freeing relationship with God through Jesus. Through intimacy and deep communion with Jesus in our soul. So this tells us that Jesus, in telling us something very practical, that he's not just simply giving us a strategy. He's not saying Okay, here's what you need to do. This will solve your problems. It's, it's, it's much more than a strategy. It's a context. So what he's saying is rest isn't only found in the absence of work or turmoil or things going on, but in getting away in order to put work and exertion and relationship with Jesus in their proper places, back where they belong. Jesus is calling his followers to remember that loving union with him is the primary source of the rest, the deep 
life-giving soul rest that we need, that we need most, that our soul needs. We need the space and the unplugging to focus on what gives us a relationship with God. And that's the cross. We need the space to meditate on and think of and go to Jesus at the cross. And so that's our last point. Here's the crux of this rest. I needed another C. I know crux isn't a word we, we use a lot, but it means the center point, the main point of, of all of this teaching on rest. And fortunately, it actually means cross. Here's the crux of this rest, a secure, eternal relationship with God because of the crossed. cross. How? Why? How, why? How does that give us rest? It's because of the cross that Jesus' words to us are come. It's because of the cross that he can say to you, and you can hear from him, come. This is the most important word in this whole text. This is what it hinges on. The, the idea of rest in this passage is found in the word come. And so for a second, to, to drive this home, I want you to think about the difference between come and go, right? Two different words. Come implies nearness, right? It, it, it rep- implies actually kind of like a state of being. It's like come and be. Think of the times that we use it, come over for dinner. So not only is that physical proximity, but that's relational proximity. It's an entering in, a drawing together, right? Go implies distance, ascending, right? A separation, and it usually includes a task, like go and do, come and be, right? Go and do, there's usually a mission or a task associated with it. So go and do this, right? So here we need to remember and think about what the world's narrative is that we've been talking about and teasing out. It says go and do, and then you can come. And sadly, many of us have this mentality as Christians. We just live in this Christian-flavored ladder of living in an economy and a world like with the same value structure as the world, just with Christian terms and Christianism and Christian activity. We live with this idea that we believed the gospel at one point, and so we were saved and forgiven, but then we were sent. And, and Jesus and God is like, go. You are forgiven, go, and earn your keep. Um, now prove yourself to me. Prove your devotion. Go, serve, serve in your church. Earn your keep. At least I've um, thought, I've had to battle with that in my own life so much. But that at its core, that is such a misunderstanding of the gospel and the power of the gospel in our lives and specifically how it gives us rest. So one of the most formative and helpful things for me in understanding this is is a quote or a a description from pastor and author Tim Keller that has been really helpful for me. And, And I remember him describing it as the difference between forgiveness and justification. Okay, justification is a big, fancy theological word that we'll learn today, if you don't already know it, um, for what happened at the cross, right? So forgiveness is this idea that, okay, it's absolved. You go into court, maybe you've been acquitted or forgiven for what you've done, and you may go. You are free to go and go about your business and do your own thing and live your life. 
But justification says, come. And to keep going with the theology here, the reason that that's possible is because of something called the substitutionary atonement that happened at the cross. See, at the cross, Jesus, the perfect man, went to the cross. He perfectly obeyed the Father and was killed on the cross to absorb all of the world's sin and God's wrath against sin. So because of sin, because of our rebellion against God, remember this idea that we have this deluded perception that we are God-like without his character, that creates enmity and war in the opposite of peace in relationship with God. So essentially the biblical language is we are enemies of God when we are in sin. And so the power of substitutionary atonement is that God himself absorbs the penalty of that sin so that his wrath is satisfied, the penalty for sin is gone. And the reason he did that is because of love, his self-sacrificial giving of himself to meet his own requirement so that to the sinner who is weary and empty-handed, he can say, come, come. To me, the barrier has been removed. You are free not to go and prove yourself to me, but to come and rest in secure, life-giving, eternal relationship with me. This makes me think of a powerful verse that you should know if you don't already. Romans 5.8. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we've got to get the power of that, that this reminds us very plainly that the invitation of the gospel is to come weary and empty-handed because he says he died for us while we were sinners, while we were at enmity with him, while we were his enemies. He brought us to himself in that state to reconcile us to him and give us peace in relationship with him. We don't have to come with our resumes. We don't have to come with our lives figured out and our perfect wisdom on how to handle cultural issues and relationships. When Jesus calls them, his disciples, to come away and rest in this passage, I mean, this is before the cross, but what he's doing is he's inviting them, he's teaching them, he's, showing, he's bringing them into relationship with himself, and this is signaling and pointing ahead to the cross. It's the cross, and what I just spent time describing about what happened there, very real life, real time, absolution of guilt and shame between us and the Father has been removed. It's that, going to the cross, the access of relationship with God through what Jesus has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, that gives us rest. Freedom from striving. But why would I be preaching to you? Why would his words be to get away and rest if this was natural for us? It's not. It's not natural for us. The gospel narrative is not. It goes against everything in our world and everything in our nature because our world is sinful and broken, and we are sinful and broken. This goes against everything that, we, that, that forms our default mode in interaction with the world. So this is why we need to get away. 
This is why he gave us a context for remembering this rest that he secured for us at the cross. The physical act and context for meditation on the gospel matters. We are embodied people with souls, with emotions, with spirits, with minds, with hearts, with feelings, with bodies that fatigue and tired. That, that these are barriers to thinking clearly, to absorb, to, to doing the hard work of opening our soul and deepening our repentance and seeing the areas and uncovering the idols and the areas of, of unbelief and false forms of identity that we flee to. This takes time. It takes practice. It takes ex, you know, expert work in a sense, like a surgeon. We go to the surgeon to find this rest and he meets us there. That's what Jesus invites us into is a context, doing the work to find the rest in him. So you may be thinking, um, for some of you out there, that, wait a second, doesn't just on this idea of come and go, you know, do we just focus on ourselves? How does it work? How do we not become just self-absorbed in my me time with Jesus? You know, and, and, and actually, doesn't Jesus say go all the time? Aren't we a, a mission-oriented people? Aren't we sent into the world as missionaries, people who live out the gospel? Doesn't Jesus say go all the time? And uh, if you're thinking about it, I mean, one of the first passages that probably comes to mind is the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that um, I have commanded you and shown you. Of course, he does say that. That's right. We do go. Doesn't the Great, uh, great Commission tell us to go make disciples? Well, that's, that's the practical application for the sermon here about resting is, is, yes, make the time to meditate on the gospel truth and go. Sounds confusing, right? But I want to remind you as I talk about the Great Commission, what the actual, what the final words are, words of promise that cloak the command to go. Jesus ends this command to go and and make disciples in his name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with this reminder of God's promise. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. He reminds them that it's out of fellowship with him and relationship with him that all of our identity and um, outward-facing energy in the world should be birthed from from a position of deep rest in the gospel. That would be called gospel strength rather than our own strength, a posture of our empty-handed weariness depending on the cross of Jesus Christ to give us the soul-needed transformation and energy to be a faithful presence in this world. This is important to remember that we go because he first said, come rather than the world that says you can come because you've gone and done. We need to remember that activity done in the world, in our culture, in our church, in our ministries, in, in serving, activity done outside of rest in the gospel of Christ is actually hostility towards God. It's hostility towards him because it's done in our own strength and, and whether we think it or not, in our own name and glory. 
This is the difference between, like I said, gospel strength and self-reliance strength. So church, friends, people watching, the goal isn't to avoid our weariness, to get overly shamed about it in ourselves. It's about being, making the priority and the space to be sustained by the gospel. So again, the application. Ask yourself some questions. What kind of space are you giving to this? If you take an inventory of your time in your life, would you expect to experience a deep, loving union with Jesus that transforms you and empowers you to love your neighbor as yourself? So as you interact with these broad things that are beyond us but need our faithful presence, are you operating out of knowing the deep soul rest that comes from knowing what Jesus has done for you at the cross and that he said to you, come and be in relationship with me. I've taken care of it. You can come. That is, that's the only way that we can begin with biblical wisdom, discernment, and insight to engage our world and our cultural issues without a spirit of pride, lack of love, fear, shame, anxiety, but through love, gospel peace and gospel love, moving towards others as Christ has moved towards us and said, come.